You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Let's pray over our time in the word this morning. Lord Jesus, um, here we are in uh, the great eight and uh, in the great 828. Just, Lord, you know we've been working our way through passages dealing with suffering and bondage of corruption and the frustration of living in a fallen world. And, and Lord, here we come to your throne with many heavy loads across our back, Lord, just the yoke that is heavy uh, in this world, Lord. We want to come to the feet of Jesus. And Lord, you say that you'll take our yoke for us and that we can take upon ourselves your yoke. Lord God, we just thank you for the promise of 828, that you're working all things that we're going through for the good if we're in Christ Jesus. Lord, you know the, the mourning people. You know the sorrowful people. You know the bitter people right now. You know the people that are struggling with sin and just the thorn in the flesh of, of just whatever it might be, being part of this fallen world. And Lord, we pray and cry out for the Holy Spirit to come and comfort and exhort and encourage and even equip us today by your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans 8, 28. How many of you have Romans 8, 28 memorized? Anybody? One person in the whole church. Pretty good. Pretty, okay. Raise your hand up higher, Hope. Goodness gracious. Well, we have been doing a series on suffering. Uh, we've been putting suffering in its place. Uh, we've been exchanging our worldview on suffering uh, for a biblical view on suffering. And, uh, you know, it's been an exciting thing. It's been a challenging thing. And uh, I'm sure it's shaped your last four weeks. And uh, we've got another week to come as we finish out the chapter. Today we'll be making it through verse uh, 28 and just a, a section of 29. Uh, we've mentioned in the last few weeks just the awareness of suffering within Calvary Chapel. Um, you know, I've mentioned I've gone through the church directory and just prayed for those of you that are in it. And I've just considered the sufferings that you're going through now as well as the sufferings that uh, you've gone through in the past. Uh, you know, the elders and I have just been aware of um, just more marriages hurting uh, in this season than, than we can really remember. And so we know that there's just... There's just uh, perseverance needed there and uh, cancers and diseases and surgeries. And, uh, you know, people are still having surgeries and not telling their pastors to pray for them. Just a lady hobbled out of here like, oh, you had a surgery this week and didn't tell me, you know, like, so if you have surgeries and I hear about it, I'm telling, I'm coming to your doorstep. You know, people are in pain. People are in anguish. People are in sorrow. You are in stress. And how in the world is there any joy in the midst of, of these times? You know, there's a few different uh, resorts that people go to. They go to just being optimists, you know, and uh, just trying to see the silver lining in every cloud. And the problem with that is that sometimes, you know, you don't really see the silver lining uh, presently. Uh, sometimes you don't see it until um, after you've died, <laughs> actually. Um, we see that people try to find joy in circumstances alone. 
And that's really actually not joy. That's actually happiness. Um, you know, the world wants to be happy. And they're happy when the check comes in. Or they're happy when they get the new truck. Or they're happy when, you know, um, the people treat them the way they want to be treated in their lives. Totally circumstantial joy equals happiness. Um, and yet, that's not why Jesus died on the cross. He didn't die on the cross to make us happy. Uh, he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and to redeem fallen man to himself. That man could be partakers with him in his suffering so that we might also be glorified together with him. Verse 17 of this very chapter says that. And so, a lot of suffering... And yet we don't want to mistake joy in this world for happiness. Now, joy, biblical joy, it doesn't matter what the circumstance is. In fact, you can be going through the worst of the worst that this world has to offer. You can be in the midst of a bone marrow transplant or paralysis or in the midst of a brutal divorce. And you can still have joy by the grace of God. Here we are in 828, the best known verse of chapter 8. Many people who are unchurched or aren't Christians don't even know where this phrase has come from, and yet it's quoted uh, all throughout society. And yet often it's just the first half of the verse that is quoted in society and out there in the world that, oh, you know, all things are working together for good. And that is often the only part of the, the verse that is quoted. And so as it's popular, it's easily dislodged from its proper context of chapter 8, specifically verses 18 through 39. And of course, by God's inspiration, it was placed between verses 27 and 29. We're going to see today that this Christian joy comes from knowing and believing and living in light of the promises of God in both the present blessings and the future blessings. And as the middle of verse 29 says, in us being conformed into the image of Christ, both presently and future, there is joy in that. Uh, we've been going through as a church and through the home groups just trying to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been just training our eyes and our minds and our hearts to look for the gospel in all passages of scripture, how Jesus will always be the hero, not me. So often our reading of the Bible is self-serving and it's all about me and I'm the hero and watch me rise up when no, we're the sinners that are in desperate need of redemption and Jesus rose up to redeem people to himself. And so in looking at the gospel, we see from Genesis through Revelation, this beautiful, wonderful epic, this exciting story um, of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Uh, we've been going through, uh, started this week in Genesis with our kids, uh, a little kid's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I absolutely love it because every story points to Jesus, just learning to train our kids to see Jesus in the scriptures. And there was an introduction this week as I read that I meant to bring it with me today to read to you guys, but I don't have it some other time. Um, but to even train our children to look in scripture for God's unfolding plan of redemption and to see that 
The joy is not found in circumstances, but it's found in what God is doing and what God has already done. From from Adam to Noah to Abraham, we see all of this promise for joy and for salvation to be fulfilled in Messiah, to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As we look at suffering in Romans chapter 8, we see that Jesus suffered once and for all so that we don't have to suffer eternally. And we can have great joy in that promise of God. Now, other religions, if you read their philosophy, they know that there is suffering, but that it's something that will maybe be different later or something that you just kind of push off to the side and endure. But biblically, Jesus comes in with the good news and he says, there's suffering, but watch me swallow up suffering and use it for good. I'm not going to just change it and make it different later. I'm going to swallow it up now and I'm going to use it for good no matter what it may be in your life. Jesus turns present tragedies into future blessings. And Paul's going to say things in this section of scripture that are going to make the Roman readers almost cough. Just like, whoa, don't wish anything on us, Paul. I mean, he's going to say first century, you know, uh, gangsta talk or whatever, like, bring it on, you know? I mean, he, I don't know if that's what, how gangs, Jesse, do gangs talk like that? <laughs> Second week in a row that I got Martinez there. Bring it on, because every suffering that we go through, my God's going to use it for good. My God's going to use it for good. So let's just look at the verse one more time. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called or are called according to his purpose. Let's just look at this first little phrase here that we know, we know it, or we consider, or we reckon these things to be true. We don't always see it, and I'm glad that the verse doesn't say that. <laughs> we don't always see things working for the good, or understand how things are working for the good, but we know it because he said he is. God's word said it, and that settles it. God's word said it, and I believe it. I uh, was 19 years old when my dad died of uh, brain cancer. We didn't know it was brain cancer at the time. Uh, but uh, a few months before he died, I was in Bible college and uh, dad had a stroke. And so I quit Bible school and went and lived in a motorhome outside of St. Charles for a few months and took care of my dad who was paralyzed uh, his entire left side and, uh, you know, just had to, had to do everything that you would need to do for a, a paralyzed person in taking care of my father. Uh, and then he ended up passing away a few months later. And uh, I remember being at his memorial service and, um, and having a friend from Corvallis come up to me that I was going to the school of ministry with. And a 20-year-old kid, you know, he came up and said to me, hey, Rory, I just want to just speak a verse of encouragement into your life. What verse do you think it was? <laughs> Romans eight twenty-eight. But he actually expounded upon it a little bit. And he said, Rory, you'll notice the first part says that we know this to be true. He's like, I know that you're just reeling in grief and loss of your father, but just know this. And you're not going to see it right now, 
You might not feel it right now, but know this. God is working something for the good, even in death, even in suffering. That day, I did get to see a little bit of it. It was about 40 people responded to the gospel there at my dad's memorial service. Uh, That was a lot of of joy there. But uh, a lot of questions over the next months and years of why, why, miss him, why? But constantly, Ben's words came back to my mind. Hey, just know this. Just know it. That all things God works for good. So what things is God working for the good? All things. Good things and bad things. In all things, God works for the good. If, if you love him, if you've been called according to his purpose, the King James Version says, all things work together for good. And then NIV, if you've got that today, you can, you can say it along with me. In all things, God works for good. Even in the things that appear to be working against me, even in the things that Satan is trying to use to attack me, These things are working together for the good. As John Murray said, there is not one detail that works ultimately for evil for the people of God. But in the end, only good will be their lot. Anybody take any comfort in that? Some of you are going through things that are flat out evil. The way people are treating you. There is attack on your life spiritually. There is warfare going on. But the good news of the gospel says that ultimately suffering does not have the final word. Ultimately, the sovereignty of God has the final word. And God says it will be good. Good will be your lot. In the midst of suffering... We want to look at what precedes verse 28 in the context. We have suffering, verse 17. In verse 18, you know, Paul says, I consider or I know. There it is again. Hey, I might not see it, but I know, I reckon it, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. We've got futility and frustration and the bondage of corruption and the groanings of creation and the sons of God and the groanings of God himself. Three different people, sets of groups of people that are groaning for final redemption to take place, for the revealing of the son of God and the sons of God. There is major suffering and groaning taking place. But it's within the context that the truth is shown that God doesn't mean to lift us up and remove us out of the tough situations. God means to work in us in the midst of those situations for our glory, but ultimately for his glory. And so God, we know it, he works all things for the good What is the good that these hard trials are working towards? Is it my comfort, my prestige, my selfish ambitions? Is that what I want to see succeed, my popularity? Is that the good that I want, my comfort and luxury? Is that what the good is here? Well, depending upon how you answer that question, will determine how you leave this room today. 
See, God's ways are a lot different than our ways, and God's good is a lot different than our worldview of what good is. He works it for the good. In Romans chapter 5, we see what some of this good is. He says in verses 3 and 4, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. When was the last time you gloried or cheered in anguish? Yeah. I mean, maybe if you're like a high school football player or something, you know, you broke a bone out on the field and you're like, yeah, buddy. Oh gosh, there it is. Feel the pain, you know. And that was kind of an odd way of cheering on the pain or something like that. That wasn't me. I didn't play high school sports, so I wouldn't know. But have you ever, ever, ever gloried in tribulation, in anguish, in stress? Have you ever cheered why would we cheer? Because it is working out perseverance or endurance or patience in us. The Lord is working behind it to produce a little bit of character in us, which is something my body needs anyways. Am I right? 1980s Tums commercial there for you guys. Or Rolades, I can't remember which. And character producing hope. What about James chapter 1 verse 2? My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, I like the way that that's phrased there in James because so often we don't ever know that a trial is coming our way. You know, wake up one morning off your Tempur-Pedic mattress, you know, and you stand up and it's still holding the shape of your body and you're just like, oh, feel, you know, you're coffee makers set to a timer and it goes off before you're even awake you know and you just kind of stretch up and the birds come through the window and land on your arm and you're singing you know and two other birds come with your robe and gently lay it across your body and before you know it you just get sucker punched in the face by some form of trial you know, you guys all know how, I mean, you just, you're not expecting it. You ultimately fall into tribulation. Right when the birds lay the robe over my shoulders, I turn around and stub my toe on the corner post of the bed, like every time. I have so many chipped toenails, I don't know what to do with them. We fall into trials like that. We're never expecting them, although we should learn to. That's really more the norm, but we think everything should just be good. We think everything should be good, and then we get upset when a trial does come. The biblical worldview would say, hey, in this life you will have tribulation. Those who want to live godly with Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's going to be bad, and if anything good happens, then get shocked. Because we fall into these various trials all over the place. But we need to know this, and we can have joy in this, that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There is a work going on for good, and it's not necessarily luxury, and it's not necessarily comfort, and it's not necessarily happiness like the world would want to give you. But man, the Lord is making his man. The Lord is making his woman. 
And the key to it all is in the middle of verse 29. He is conforming you into the image of his son. He's conforming you into the image of his son. If you've ever read Hebrews chapter 11, you read just the account of all of these forerunners of the faith that have gone before us. I always called Hebrews 11 the hall of faith, kind of like the hall of fame, but just these guys that went before that just exercised great faith in a great God and accomplished great things for him. And of course, it wasn't them that did it. It was Jesus that accomplished it. And so really the hall of fame, it's about Jesus there in Hebrews chapter 11. But you read these stories of men and women that went through crazy things, leaving their homeland, you know, putting their baby in a basket in a river, trying to save the baby's life, enduring trials of fire, uh, you know, escaping the edges of the sword. And you just got to ask yourself, did these heroes of the faith have Romans 8.28 memorized as they're in the midst of the trial? And I know God is working all things for good. Because I love him. I'm called according to his purpose. In the midst of the battle, in the midst of the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, were they quoting this? They I mean, probably at the, at the time, like we often do, just had their mind on the, on the trial at the moment. Maybe some of them were in that place. I mean, David, in the midst of a battle, probably had the thought about, man, I'm growing weak in the middle of the battle, you know? My guy's got to come and, and rescue me or I'm going to get killed right here. But the, the uh, hindsight would show that God indeed was working for good, even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of, you know, Nathan rebuking David for his adultery and murder and that affair with Bathsheba. There's no way that God could be working that for the good. Well, you might want to think about the line of Jesus. <laughs> you might want to think about the line that Jesus came through. So let's look at Joseph real quick. You don't even have to turn there because most of you know the story. But as Joseph went through his trial, I mean, it started out good, right? He was like the favorite son out of 12 boys. His dad bought him an amazing Technicolor dream coat, you know, for him to wear around and flaunt in front of his brothers. You know, he, he was the one that, you know, would have dreams about everyone else bowing down before him. And that just seemed like a great thing to share with everybody. And as he's out in the field, you know, the brothers who hate him devise a scheme and they're going to kill him. But I believe it was Reuben that, you know, stood up for him and said, hold on, let's just maybe sell him into slavery. Let's not kill him. So they throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery, grab his colorful coat, put blood all over it, make it appear that a mountain lion had gotten him and send him off, send him off into slavery, hopefully to never see him again. You know, as he's in prison, he sees seems to have favor in the eyes of uh, Potiphar and becomes the ruler over Potiphar's house, the, uh, the, uh, the head servant. And Potiphar loved Joseph. The only problem was Potiphar's wife also loved Joseph and put the moves on him. And he repeatedly 
you know, uh, said no, said no until one day so strongly she said, lie with me. And he said, how can I do this great wickedness against my God? And he fled from sexual immorality like Paul instructs us to do with such a great hard to pin down force that she grabs his robe and he runs so hard it rips off of him and he runs out naked. She cries rape and Potiphar throws him in prison. Joseph spends years and years in prison. Probably not really thinking about God's working this together for good. He meets a butcher, a baker, and a candlestick maker. No, just a, he meets a, a baker and a wine taster and interprets their dreams for them and gets them out of the jail. And they're supposed to remember him, but they forget him. One baker gets killed, can't remember him. The wine taster forgets uh, Joseph for years to come until finally he remembers it. Pharaoh needs a dream translated and Joseph is brought out of prison to interpret the dream and he's made vice president over all of Egypt. Well, the Lord tells him through Pharaoh's prophecy, prophetic dream, that there's gonna be a famine in the land and, and Joseph is used to prepare food for this huge famine. And who comes to partake of that food during the famine but Joseph's own brothers? Long story made short, those brothers end up finding out that it's Joseph. They're terrified that Joseph's going to kill them, but Joseph speaks of mercy and love and grace to them. And he says there in Genesis chapter 50, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So these brothers walking in the flesh devise this evil plan and God not only uses it for good and works it for good to save a nation and to save uh, the, the line of Jesus, he not only uses it, but there's a key word there that just shows God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering and should give us great joy in the midst of suffering. There's a key word and it is God meant it. God meant it. What a thought that God not only allows the trials in our life, but sovereignly is working behind the trials in our life is using the trials in our life and even bringing the trials in our life. Joseph's story is that God meant it for good. He's sovereignly working. It wasn't an accident that the brothers turned on Joseph and it wasn't an afterthought that let's use this for good. God meant it. If you think of one man in the whole of scriptures that really went through the most suffering, who comes to your mind? Okay, good one. <laughs> Caught me off guard there with the Sunday school answer. Didn't think you'd throw that out there. Okay, Jesus. Who else? Job. All right. Job, man, we know he was a guy that was righteous before the Lord. Of course, not his own righteousness, but he looked forward towards the cross. He was a righteous man, had relationship with God. He was wealthy. 
just had the biggest herds of camels and donkeys and cattle and sheep and a great amount of land, had beautiful, wonderful kids that appeared to love the Lord. And one day when Satan went and presented himself before God, as he often does, to bring accusation against uh, the, the people of God, God says, if you consider Job, look how righteous he is. Look how he's just living for me. He's loving me. And Satan says, the only reason he's doing that is because he's wealthy, he's blessed. But you touch his you know, property, you touch his possessions. Eventually the story goes on. You touch his body, he'll curse you. He'll curse you. And there he was after the building collapsed on his kids and killed all his kids. And the, the neighboring countries stole all his camels and donkeys. And eventually his body was allowed to be touched by the enemy and he has these boils all over and he's scraping the, the pus pockets with a pot shirt, scraping them off, laying in a pile of manure that the wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? That's what Satan wanted him to do, curse God and die. But he says, worship. He worships the Lord. He says, man, shouldn't we take the good and the bad? Man, doesn't God just, he's over it. He's sovereign over it. Shouldn't we just take the good and the bad? Both. And in chapter 42, verse 11, in Job, his family and friends are there and they're consoling him and they're comforting him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Wait, who brought this upon him? Wait, the beginning of Job, Satan went in there and was trying to pick a fight. And you know, it's the Lord. It was the Lord manipulating things and working things in a good way to bring about his great plan of redemption, to bring about glory for Job, for Joseph, for himself. This wasn't an error of an author in the scripture. This was the writer under the inspiration of the spirit attributing the sufferings of Job to God's sovereignty. And James has a little commentary on this in James chapter five, verse 11, when he says, indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. God had an intent. God was working all things for the good in Job's life. How about Esther? A beautiful virgin who lived in the Persian empire when the queen Vashti refused to dance for the king. She was kicked out of the castle and a beauty pageant was held to pick a new queen. And there was Esther, the most beautiful woman in the pageant. She was chosen, which to us would seem like awesome, chosen to be the king's wife. Not a good thing to be a Medo-Persian king's wife, to be part of a, a pagan household. And as the plot of Haman comes about to annihilate the Jews through mass genocide. The story is, is a little longer than what I have time to tell you today. 
her uncle Mordecai speaks to her, the new queen, he speaks to her and says in chapter four, verse 14, is it not for such a time as this that you have come into this kingdom? Be brave, be bold, Esther. Go and talk to the king on our behalf. Do you see God maneuvering people even into the most horrific circumstances that he can accomplish his purposes? What are you going through right now? Trials, frustration, feeling corruption. Ask for biblical lenses over your eyes to see the good that God's working out. And when you can't see it, cheer anyways. First Peter chapter one, verses six and nine says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not yet see him, Seeing yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Peter says, you can rejoice that this thing is going on knowing at the very least that God is refining you. He's testing your faith. He's polishing your faith. He's putting your faith in the refiner's fire, just as gold or silver is cranked up in the furnace and the impurities in the dross rises to the top to be scraped off and make that gold all the more pure. Your faith oftentimes goes through the fire and is tested and is purified. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses two through five, the Lord explains what those 40 years in the wilderness were all about. Uh, the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. It says, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Why that trial? Well, to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. And then we jump down to verse 16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you. I just want to read it together. To do you good in the end. Those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. There's a new movie out. It's like called Mountain of Fire. It's old, actually. It's at the public library. And it, it's a movie that shows Mount Sinai. Uh, the burnt mountain, it shows the rock that was split and the water came out. You got to watch it. It's great. A little cheesy in some parts. But other than that, uh, you just see the desert that these people went through for 40 years. And if you go to Israel, you know, man, hot, dry, barren wilderness land. And for 40 years, God was doing a work in the children of Israel. He was 
humbling them. He was testing them. He was chastening them. He was teaching them. I gave you manna to teach you that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. All of these things, it was to do you good in the end. Not many of us like chastening. Not many of us like discipline. Not many of us like correction. Hopefully you know where I'm going with this. Hopefully you're getting an understanding of the word enough to go discipline, correction, God using it. Where would I be going? Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12. Those of you that are parents, this is a good good scripture for you. Hebrews 12, 5, it says, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God chastens those that he loves. Just like an earthly father, they love their son, they love their daughter, they love them enough to not let them stay the way they are. And so there's correction, there's the spankings, there's the rod as the Bible talks about it. And it never seems pleasant at the time, but it always yields peaceable fruits of righteousness. Good, right? All things work for the good. All correction, all chastening, it is for the good. No matter how humbling it is, no matter how much it breaks you, no matter how much it removes you from yourself, it will work for good. You know, no chastening seems pleasant at the time. And that don't, not only goes for the one who's getting the spanking, but the one who's giving the spanking, am I right? The one who's doing the disciplining. I mean, that's, that's not fun for a parent. But I've just been noticing, and the Lord's been working it a little bit more, not every time, but after times of discipline and chastening come great times of discussion and preaching of the gospel and prayer, and just working out salvation, <laughs> working out, preaching the gospel to my kids. Those are good times. They work out for the good. So this all sounds great, right? This is something that you can, you know, you run into the guy at the grocery outlet, and you know, his girlfriend broke up with him, you know, and he smashes them with his hammer, and you can bust out this verse, you know, hey, all things are working for the good, man. All right, see you later, homie. Okay, see you. You know, we want to we remember the rest of the verse, right? When we speak to our friends, we want to remember that it's, hey, it's, but it's for certain people that this promise is true. Who is it for? What are the clauses here? 
First of all, it is for those who love God. And so you get to preach the gospel to your friend there in Grocery Outlet. That's where he always is. <laughs> hey, you know, you hit your thumb, all this, man. I just want you to know, man, in Christ, man, if you have this relationship with him, if you have had intimacy restored with him through the cross, there's, there's love again, you love him, man, this is all gonna work for the good, even the worst pain of it all. You know, later on in the chapter, not today, don't worry, we're gonna read of God's unfailing, unending love. But right here, we read about our love towards God. And these promises are true that all things, imprisonment and humiliation and the loss of a battle, the loss of a home, it all works to good, but it's for those that love God. Those are the recipients. Loving God is the defining characteristic of those who are Christians, not how they talk, how they walk, if they wear Christian t-shirts. It's loving God. That is the marking, distinguishing mark of a Christian is if he or she loves God. My kids, I love them. I mention them every week, don't I? Sometimes multiple times, I'm sure. Okay. But I just have to share that Russell, he's becoming this little theologian and I love it. He's just like talking about Jesus all the time. And I might've shared this before, but I'm getting old and my memory is losing me. So, but we're driving in the car and I mean, he's just talking about Jesus. He's talking about sin. He's talking about sin is broken, you know, all this and that. And then he talks to Laney and he just looks over and he's like, Laney, do you love Jesus? And Laney just likes to be ornery and just likes to mess with them and knows it's going to freak him out. And so she says, no. Oh my gosh, tearing of the clothes, sackcloth and ash dumped on his head. What? Mom, dad, Laney doesn't love Jesus. Laney, do you hate Satan? No. Oh gosh. You know, do you hate sin? No. Oh gosh. You know, and I love that and you know, and then, of course, Laney will have time. I love Jesus. Let's pray, blah, blah, blah. She just loves to push his buttons, and it totally does. Okay, It's a lot of fun, actually. I've been doing it myself. I don't even love God, son. Oh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it's a great question, Russell, and we should ask that to ourselves every day. Am I walking in love towards God right now? You know, the, the Shema, you know, the verse of the Hebrews that they would just quote every day that, you know, that they would begin by, you know, uh, wrapping on their arms and putting on their foreheads as frontlets between their eyes and putting on their doorposts. It's that first exhortation of Moses to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. The love of God is the distinguishing Factor. And we're not talking about just a fleeting emotion. And we're not just talking about an intellectual affirmation of the truth or even a belief in God. We're not even talking about just loving God's gifts as the essence of loving God. I mean, if you only love forgiveness but don't love the forgiver, then there's a problem. 
If you only want to escape hell, but not be with the one who rescued you from hell, there's a problem. And so we don't want to just go to heaven and not have Jesus there. We want to have Jesus and be wherever he's at. We want to love Jesus, loving God, that biblical direction of Christians. And it will result in all kinds of fruits of love multiple times. And John seems to be the apostle that heralds it the most. He'll declare from Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments. Or later on in John 14, he who has my commandments and keep them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. But the keeping of the commandments is the fruit of loving God. And we love God, why? Well, 1 John chapter four tells us we love him because he first loved us. It's this natural reflex from our heart when we know of his great love for us. You know, the doctor hits your knee and that leg goes flying out. I mean, we hear of the love of Jesus and his pursuit of us and his redemptive plan. And I can't help but just love him back. Those who love God, the second clause is that it's for those who are called according to his purpose. So the first part of the clause is all these things, they work together for good if you love God, if you love him, if you love his people. And then he goes on to say, and if God's action has been working towards you, and that is the calling. Now, the thing is, is that they're not inseparable. These are the same people. Those who love God are those that are called. Those that are called are those that the Holy Spirit's placed that love for God in. The calling of God is something that we have no control over, either originating that calling or frustrating that calling. We also have no boasting because the illumination, the setting forth of salvation began with his pursuit of us, this call. Winslow, a preacher from many years ago said, has this call reached you? Ministers have called you. The gospel has called you. Providences of God have called you. Conscience has called you. But has the spirit called you with an inward and effectual vocation? Have you been spiritually called from darkness to light, from death to life, from sin to holiness, from the world to Christ, from self to God. Examine your heart and ascertain. Oh, it's a matter of the greatest moment that you know you are truly converted, that you are the called of God. Has the thrilling, life-inspiring music of that call sounded and reverberated through all the chambers of your soul? That is the question. You know, we're going to get into some, some deep doctrinal truths of soteriology, God's working in salvation, God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility, and the balance therein. We will look at foreknowledge and predestination and election, deep doctrine that is good doctrine. And the truth is in that doctrine, have you been called? Have you experienced that calling? 
I don't know. Have I? Well, is Jesus what you desire? Right now, right here, as the preaching is being done, as the preaching is going forth, is Jesus what you desire more than anything else in this world and what it might have to offer? Has the Holy Spirit been speaking to you that God is sovereignly working to redeem you to himself? You can respond to that calling. It's interesting, you know, there's, there's a debate. There's those that major on man's responsibility end of things and, and uh, you know, man kind of like initiates salvation and, and that's wrong biblically. You know, there's another side, you know, that majors on all God's sovereignty, no man's responsibility at all, kind of a fatalism type look at salvation. And it's just cool because there's, you know, there's uh, the scriptures and we can come to the scriptures and we can wrestle them out and there's a mystery in it and we embrace the mystery and we want to love God by looking at theology. And it's just interesting this week, kind of listening to some guys from both camps and they both told the same story and it just kind of comes back to us embracing the mystery where they said, you know, uh, man, as we walk through the gateway into Christianity, you know, we look upon the archway and we see the, the scriptural truth that whoever would believe will be saved. You know, whosoever will. And we walk in through the gates of eternity and we look around and we see written on the archway on the opposite side, called and chosen from the foundations of the world. And, you know, we can cry out, Lord, you knew me before I knew you. Lord, you were calling me while I was still in my sin. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and know that you're called. People wonder, well, I don't know, Should I, am I called, am I elect? Well, do you believe in the Lord Jesus today? That's all I can say. There's a big mystery behind it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The verse of verse 28 is not for everyone. It's for those who love God and it's for those that are called. It is for Christians. It's for Christians. And God is working these things for the good. We're going to close. The worship team can come on up. Just the Spurgeon quote here. That he who said all things work together will soon prove to you that there is harmony in the most discordant parts of your life. You shall find when your biography is written that the black page did but harmonize with the bright one. That the dark and cloudy day was just a glorious foil to set forth the brighter noontide of your joy. God's working through the sufferings. But the Holy Spirit's plea to you today is be reconciled to God. And if you're here today and you hear the, the, the voice of the Lord calling you to repent of your sin, then just respond to him. Put your trust in him. Rest in him. Confess Lord, I want to be that one that Rory speaks of that loves you. Not just so you'll be my sugar daddy and just give me a bunch of stuff, but Lord, you're worthy to be loved. 
I want you, Lord. You are the prize. And just cry out to Jesus right now just for the forgiveness of sins and for the redemption of the fallen condition in your life that he would even work these sufferings and the pain and the trials toward the good. And right now where you're at, just in your heart, you can just rest and trust and put your faith in Jesus. But if you come here today and you harden your heart against God, you reject this good news of the scriptures, then the opposite of verse 28 is true for you. That nothing is working out for the good for you. Even if you've got comfort and luxury and just good stuff right now, it's actually all working towards death, towards destruction, towards judgment. And eternity in hell. If you don't love God, you're not called this morning. But Hebrews, the promise is spoken to us that today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Today, by God's grace, he's brought you to this place and he's spoken the word to you and he's calling you into eternal life and into sweet relationship with the God of the universe. And he's made that all possible by his death on the cross and the shedding of his blood for the remission and for the forgiveness of sins. And maybe today for the first time, you would just receive that free gift of eternal life, that free gift of salvation. And you would come up here to the communion table for the first time as a Christian, you would take the bread, the cracker, and as you eat it, you will remember the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And you'll take the cup and you'll drink it and you'll remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. those that are Christians here today, we can take communion and we can thank the Lord that his suffering once for all saved me from a suffering for all eternity. And we worship him and we thank him. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.